Who haven't we talked about yet? Let's see who's, who's keeping track. I know. Who haven't we talked about? Paddock. 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 Or, excuse me. Patek. John, now you got to say Paddock. Patek. 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 Oh, all right. I'm going to pick a weird one. I'm going Grandmaster Chime. Uh, <laughs> Car Car just laughs at me. I say Grandmaster Chime. No, because every starts... time I hear that name, I think Grandmaster Flash, and I can't. <laughs> yeah, me too. I can't. Yeah. It's, I only call that watch the Grandmaster Flash Perfect. because it just is. Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverin and this is Hodinky Radio. Although the calendar's turned over and it's 2020 now, we're not quite done looking back at the 20-teens. We thought it'd be nice to do a roundup of the most important watches of the decade. You can measure that in a lot of different ways, but we're looking at the watches that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to look back and think of as the watches that defined the 20-teens. These can be super high-end, they can be extremely accessible, they can be complicated, they can be simple. You're going to see a real diversity of choices. I brought Cara, John, and James into the studio and presented to them my list of 10 watches and kind of let them critique it, tell me what I could have done differently, and then we discuss some alternative options. It's a fun look at what the last decade's been in watches and most of all at how amazing the watch community has been over the last 10 years. It's grown, it's diversified, we're seeing more interesting things now than ever, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, let's get into it. This week's episode is presented by Leica Camera. Stay tuned later in the show to learn about the new M10 Monochrome. For more, visit us.leicacamera.com. Hey fam, what's going on? Not too much. How you doing? Not much. Ready for this pod. Yeah, same. <laughs> oh, all right so james has been in a photo studio all day shooting by himself and we dragged him out here uh to i guess we can call this civilization maybe yeah um all right so what we're here to do today i brought all of you guys in here mostly to sit here for the next hour and tell me how very very wrong i am uh about everything so i hope you're all up to uh to that challenge. i'm ready yeah let's do it you guys have been waiting for this um my whole life cool uh so one thing we, we wanted to do is it's still early in 2020, it's a new decade, but we didn't want to totally leave the teens behind. Uh, it was a pretty important decade for watches and watchmaking, and we wanted to do some sort of like retrospective, look back at, at the watches of the decade. So Gray and I were chatting, and we decided we wanted to do 10 watches for 10 years. So it's the 10 watches of the previous decade. Um there are a million ways we could have judged this. We could have talked about the most popular watches. We could talk about the watches that sold the most, uh, the watches that were kind of the most revolutionary. What we settled on was the 10 watches that defined the 2000 teens. So the watches here are not my favorite watches. They're not even what I would say are maybe the best watches of the last 10 years. But to me, they're the watches that like 100 years from now, these will be 10 watches that give us a good summary of what watches were like and what happened in the watch world over the last 10 years. That makes sense to everybody? Yes. Yep. All yes. Right. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> what we're going to do here is I'm going to go over my picks. 
Um, and then you guys can jump in. Tell me why you agree with me, why you disagree with me, what watches you would have picked instead to kind of serve the same purpose. And uh, we'll just go through this and, and hopefully paint a little bit of a portrait of, of what the last 10 years in this this weird, wonderful uh, little little hobby is. Sounds good to me. All right. We're not going to do this chronologically. I'm going to just kind of pick a little bit randomly from my list here. Um, let's start with... I'm going to start here. Let's start with, with a big guy. Let's start with, with an obvious one. Uh, I'm going to go with the Rolex Daytona. The 116500LN, which was released at Basel World 2016. This is the ceramic Daytona. Yeah. The black uh, and the white. Yeah. The black and the white. And the uh, black. The black and the white and the black. The black on black and the, what white. would it be? White on black or black on white? Maybe black on white. Okay, cool. I'm glad we, I'm glad we got that settled. Um, yeah. I mean, this to me is, is maybe the most no-brainer pick for this list. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine the watch world the last 10 years without this watch i was kind of shocked when i was when i was looking this up that it came out back in 2016 there's still so much buzz around this watch it's kind of mind-blowing uh that this watch at this point is like almost four years old yeah they're still kind of impossible to get people still freak out when they see somebody else wearing one um i think this might be the hottest watch of the decade if i had to boil it down to one uh and one of the reasons i think it's it's so hot is it's rolex doing what they do best right like it's Technically, it's probably the best, almost certainly the best Daytona ever made. It's pretty classic. It's going to look pretty classic 50 years from now. Um, and it kind of just gives people what they want. Like, it doesn't overthink the formula. It's like black dial, white dial. It has a black ceramic bezel. It comes on a bracelet. The case is super thin. It's a great movement. Like, it's a great watch. It's Rolex doing what Rolex does best. Any Anybody agree, disagree? Yeah, I mean, I I might disagree. I might say that the, the like the current um, assortment of GMT Master Twos, the ones with um, you know, they all have a maxi case, and the ones that have the new souped up movement uh, with the longer power reserve and the Chronergy Escapement are uh, maybe more significant. You know, and with the with the Daytona, you still have that old style case. Um, so I feel like it's still got a little bit of its like foot in the history of Rolex, whereas some of the steps that they made forward in the last decade or, or more of the steps that they took forward in the, in the last decade are represented in other sports models, such as the GMT master. Tip. But do you think there was more hype? I guess it's kind of hard. You kind of have to like define what like makes a watch of the decade. Like, sure. is it like technical advancements or is it cultural culturally significant? Like, I guess mm. it could be both, but I guess for the, you know, just for the sake of argument, like if is the GMT, was there more hype around that than the Daytona? Like, I don't, I don't no, know. I don't, think so. I don't I, think so. I mean, yeah. I just started, so I was like one year in, so I, I don't really know what it was like before that, before the Daytona came out. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think people still, it is still like a folklore, and it was the first time that a steel watch I felt like really had a long waiting list. It's it's undoubtedly a huge watch. It's a huge steel watch. It's one of Rolex's most important models, and it is remarkable that like. To John's point, I would say that the the GMT is a larger technical achievement, and it also was a rethinking of a watch that wasn't already insanely popular, the GMT. The Daytona, I mean, like, this has been the decade of Daytona. The last three years have been arguably the hottest three years for the concept of the Daytona. It's history, it's modern, it's anything else. The precious metal ones with the uh, Oyster Flex and, and, and everything else, there's a, lot, there's a lot there. So I think that some of the the hype of this is on a train that was already moving. Whereas yeah. I think they had to pick up steam, especially when they decided to make the uh, two color bezel, which is a 
huge technical achievement. It's really difficult to produce, especially it's remarkably difficult to produce red, which is why we uh, people who are deep into this know that there's actually Different color changes yeah. over the last few years since they launched yeah. the original white gold, which was much more purple and magenta in its coloring. And then when you see the most recent model, which has the Jubilee bracelet, it is much closer to an actual blue-red color. Um, I, I think it's one of those things where it comes down to how you want to look at watch of the decade. Definitely, you're gonna. it's going to be tough to say that any watch of the decade couldn't be a Daytona of yeah. some sort. It's right. just yeah. such a, uh, it's such, it's been such a time for them and for Rolex in general. Um, but I definitely think that, it, that those are those two watches from them are definitely in the running. Yeah. One, one of the things, cause I, I definitely thought about whether this should be a Daytona or a GMT. And one of the things I, I really kept thinking about was this watch came out after the 50th anniversary of the, the Daytona. So for the, the year before, for the 50th anniversary of the Daytona, I guess it was two years before for the 50th anniversary of the Daytona. Um, they did the They came out platinum. with the platinum one, yeah. platinum the brown, with the and blue, and brown. brown. Yeah. Yeah. And people lost it. Like, people were so upset that the watch they got was not this watch, like the, the steel Daytona with the ceramic bezel. I mean, I'll, I'll tell my favorite story, which is, like, I was with Ben when we like watched the windows at Basel World and like at Basel World Rolex has this booth that has a sort of corner and there's one window where you always know that's where the top years sort of novelty is going to be displayed where the new the new watch hate the word novelty I'll try not to use that sorry guys I think of like chattering teeth or something yeah sorry sorry guys that's my bad um oh it never bothered me before yeah it's the worst oh it's the worst sorry um but uh doesn't bother you? Novelty? Yeah, why yeah. would it bother me? The I idea think, like, I think like, of like novel, like literal novelties. Like yeah. the but it is a literal novelty, isn't it? But I think of it, isn't it just like French for new? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. just like a <laughs> like bad a... translation in English, yeah. Um, I like the segue. Yeah, sorry guys. Sorry, sorry for the sidebar there. But I mean, Ben and I were standing like watching. They have these green curtains over the windows and at noon on the first press day, like the green curtains all go up mechanically at the same time, whatever. And I remember the window went up and like, you would have thought like someone in Ben's family had died. Like he was crestfallen over the fact that this was the watch that came out. And he was like, like actively upset about it for days, you know? And like, that's how so many like diehard Daytona enthusiasts felt. They were just so disappointed. And a lot of people have grown to really like that watch. I actually like that watch way more now than I did at the time. But I think that helped build some anticipation around this watch that like, it's what everybody wanted, and they didn't give it to us when we yeah. thought they were going to. I was I was probably like twenty feet to the right or left. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember when yeah. that went up, and we saw this, and we're like, "Is that like blue? Is it? Oh, that's brown, huh? Oh wait, it's platinum." And you're like, "Oh, well, that must be like the zebra dial or yeah. a, a cheetah <laughs> yeah. one. Like, where's yeah. the other one?" And everybody yeah, starts yeah, looking yeah. in the other windows, and and it's kind of like that thing where your parents would put the biggest put a pair of socks in the biggest box on yeah, Christmas, right? Only like. These are platinum socks, and <laughs> you're gonna have to wait till your birthday to get the thing you actually wanted, I suppose. Right? Yeah. No, that's exactly. It was it. weird, but they pulled. They like, and it, and it's just it, that's so Rolex to yeah. be like. Not only are we above the idea that we're gonna put out anything on your schedule, <laughs> like this is our game. We created it. Yeah. We're just gonna do whatever we want, and this yeah. time it's a kind of a weird Daytona. You know, for the first jump into a ceramic bezel on the Daytona. And, and like John said, these the, the Daytona still retains the old case, which I think makes it one of their strongest models Agreed. ergonomically. And I think a lot of people buy that watch with no intention of ever using the chronograph. It just fits the best. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, that uh, that 
I'm dealing with some platinum watches currently or a platinum watch currently for review. And every time I pick it up, I think of that, uh, that Rolex, which I've only ever, I saw once in the wild, weirdly enough, maybe it was a fake. Who knows? I do remember that it weighed something like 282 grams. Yeah. Uh, It's a, it's a hefty one. Yeah. It's a chunk. All right. So before we move on to the next watch, ultimately, if you guys were making a list, would this watch make your list? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would. All right, there we go. Unanimous, right off the bat. Boom. Um, All right, so we talked about Rolex doing things on their own schedule and kind of like not caring what anybody else thinks. Uh, I want to go to a watch where actually I'm already cheating here. Uh, It's a trio of watches because they were released together. That's kind of the opposite. Uh, I think the Omega Trilogy set from 2017 um, is a super important thing, and I think it's important as much for what it says about Omega as for what the watches themselves represent. So for people who may not remember, in 2017, Omega released three watches. They released a Speedmaster, a Railmaster, and a Seamaster, um, all of which were celebrating their anniversary years at the same time. So what they did was they took examples from their archives and they scanned them and x-rayed them and then produced essentially like part-for-part remakes of the originals from 1957. Um, for the 60th anniversary. So you could buy each watch individually or you could buy a box set that included all three watches and they were specially numbered and marked trilogy and and this whole thing. Um, And the case for these watches to me is, is that this proved that Omega is dedicated to the collector community and the enthusiast community where so many brands are doing their own thing. They're kind of focused on what's next Omega understands that that a huge part of what makes it special is its diehard collector base, and they've they've decided that they're they're going to cater to those people. And it's I, I don't think it's pandering. I don't think it's it's kind of uh, kowtowing. I think it's really like they know who's important in the long run for them, and and they're going to make watches that that kind of celebrate that. Um, I thought a lot about whether it should be something that's Meta certified from Omega. Uh, whether maybe the dark side of the moon from 2013, which which was a watch that came to mind for me, and so this this to me celebrates kind of what what makes Omega special. What do you guys think? Any anybody have anybody wouldn't give me more cases for including the trilogy on this list? I think it also represents like a kind of an apex mountain for the new vintage trend. Yeah, uh, like I think it continued, but I think that was a point where. It was like peak. It, it's a peak. Like they did it really well. They looked back at their history. They remade something that was brand new, that had a warranty, that didn't require you to go and dig through, uh, and a, a, you know, a, a PhD level of research before you'd feel comfortable spending X number of dollars on these three watch to have the original kind of trilogy that defined their sport presence. Yeah. And it, I think it's also interesting because, of course, the being fifty-seven, we're predating their time in space. Uh, which has become true. Absolutely, like that. And James Bond is is Omega to a lot of people. Who, so they were making something for people who knew more about their history than the most casual entry points to the brand: the James Bond, the Olympics, and uh, you know NASA and, and the Moonwatch. Uh, yeah. And, and and I think they created three super desirable watches while they did that. And I think nailing all of those points makes it kind of uh, uh, definitely one of the the best performances in the new vintage trend which i you know we've been on record saying it's a little tired it's hard to do a really good job at it now it's not impossible it's just like everybody's tried 
And in this case, I think that they uh, they went back to obviously a playbook that already existed, but they executed really well. Yeah, I totally agree. I agree with everything you guys are saying, but oh, here we go. I love those watches. I think they're great. I thought it was. I agree. I think it was like peak new vintage, really marked that spot. However, is it really a watch of the decade if it's carbon copy of the original? Because those watches that therefore technically would have shaped the previous decades, not this one. Car coming in hot. That's with all some I'm semantic saying. Arguments. That's I am. I'm, that's all I'm saying. I I buy that. Like I'll. I'll I'll hear that argument. But then you can also you can't say that the 321 is necessarily one of the watch of the decade either because that too is an old movement. So it's kind of tricky. It's I don't know tricky. what the answer is, but I don't have a substitute, but I'm just no, saying no, no. that's just kind of my food for thought. That time is a flat circle. Yeah, I mean James James, and James has it. always has a perfect rebuttal. There we go. I mean, I, what do you I think, stand, John? I stand quiet I, now. I'm I think done. they're great-looking watches, but I uh, but I do have to kind of um I think it's worth pointing out that when you when you scan a watch, like you don't need a, des- a designer anymore. You're effectively doing something that's already been done. Yeah. And if it's what people want, and if you're doing other creative things alongside them, which Omega certainly is doing, um, things that are, uh, you know, also targeted toward the collector base that isn't, uh, you know, a carbon copy of something they've already done, and other things that are, you know, more commercial but still interesting and uh, that will sell, you know, tons of examples. Um, that's totally fine. But I think in the case of these three watches, it's you know, just worth bearing in mind that uh, they didn't need a designer. This is something that uh, had already been done. I think that's a fair point on Cara and John. Uh, yeah, that, that, I, I, that maybe this isn't the most legitimate choice for a decade, considering it didn't kind kind of didn't come out of this I'll, decade. Beautiful watches. Though. I'll I'll agree. I'll 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 take that. I still think. And we did have the dark side of the moon and the planet ocean launch in that decade. Yeah, we did. We had the planet. I I mean, for me, the runner up here is is the dark side of the moon. You I know? agree with that. Ceramic Speedmaster. It you know, brings kind of a whole new aesthetic sensibility to Omega, which then kind of rolls out across some of the other lines with these ceramic watches with ceramic dials. Um, also, the meta certification is like a big deal. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Like, that's like it's a, a huge, that's huge a, thing. Yeah. Agreed. So, I mean, Omega had a big decade. We'll yeah. talk the about 9, that a little bit. 9,000 series movement was, was a big, uh, definitely a big move for them. Yeah. And even just, just the proliferation and steady kind of work on the coaxial escapement. True. Yeah, just the fact which, that they which were able predates, to but still, that. Yeah. Has, yeah. they've taken it to such a high degree now. You know, you, we remember early speedies or early Seamaster Planet Oceans. You were you would actually know the generational reference of the twenty five hundred movements of a twenty five hundred A or a B yeah. or a C, and then when you were buying or selling those online, you would know what you were looking for because they were kind of wabi sabi. They were kind of in developed. Like they were really great movements, and people still love them. But they were essentially coaxial ability strapped into an edda an expression of an edda movement and then they went buck wild when they moved into uh the gener you know the kind of generation they're in now super technologically advanced all right so in summary does the omega trilogy set make your list nay i don't think so no all right i'm gonna dig in here i'm gonna say yes I'm, i'm i'm sticking with it here uh all right up next the richard meal rm 2701 tourbillon rafael nadal from 2013. That thing is sick. That yeah. thing is so... So cool. It weighs less than a All piece right. of paper. I'm, I'm going to go for it here. That watch is so fucking cool. <gasps> oh, you man. just dropped oh, an F-bomb. I did. I did. I'm going for it. It's <laughs> Guys, like the first time I ever saw one of these in the metal was at Christie's. I went to an auction preview with Ben. It was probably 20... 
14 and there was one for sale and Ben like called me over. We were looking at different stuff in different cases and he called me over and he was like, put out your hand. And I was like, okay. And I put my hand out and he put the watch in my hand and I laughed. Like my, my immediate just like visceral response was to laugh at this thing. It is crazy that an object with like this much volume mm. can weigh that little, like your brain can't kind of process it. It's almost like a, like an optical illusion of some kind or like a multi-sensory illusion. Um, the watch weighs just under 19 grams, which is silly. Like almost half of that is the strap. Um, and to me, it's, it's quintessential RM. It's ultra light. It's a tourbillon. It has that tonneau shape. It has a big celebrity attached to it. It's kind of in your face. Like this past decade of watches, like you, I don't think you can talk about this decade without talking about RM. Um, I agree with that. And to me, like this is the RM. Uh, it's also personally speaking, it is so far outside my usual taste and I love it so much. Yeah. It like it kind of makes me question all of my own tastes, which I think a good piece of design and a good product kind of does. Like it, it forces you to question why you like it or don't like it. And this is a watch that makes me question like everything. Mm-hmm. Also, he wears it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's which is like the best part. Is he like, wears it when he plays. He's yeah. always wearing it. And like I think it's their most iconic watch, right? Or their best known watch. And yeah. then it's I would also say so. it's Nadal is like their best known spokesperson or ambassador and they they revolutionized the uh what a, what a watch uh, ambassadorship could be right by having you know the the top athletes in their respective fields wearing these watches as they played and it started with nadal i mean i guess it started in in formula one yeah. uh, cars but it's but but nadal is the one who really brought it yeah. uh, into the next kind of phase i think for them this is like the perfect hybrid of techno technological being technologically advanced and a cult, like a cult icon as well. This yeah. is like the high. This is like where they intersect for the decade. It's also the inverse of the of that Omega Trio. Like your criticism of the Trio is, you know, that it wasn't new. It didn't really like. They look back at something that was great and they made it again and cool because there's not. It's not like you can't remake a '60s Ferrari now and you crash it and everybody dies. <laughs> but. That's not funny. There's no airbags <laughs> and there's no, you know, like all, all of the rules have changed, but none of those rules apply to watches and that can go in two different directions. You can make a watch that's 50 years old or you can make a watch like a Richard Mill that's like now. Of the and like, or of the future. Talk about the brand of this decade. Yeah. Um, definitely a, a, a contender. Yeah. Agreed. I would totally, totally agree. Here, here. So ultimately, if you're making your list, RM2701. Yeah, I mean, I think the list has to have a Richard Mill, and um, I can't think of a better one than this. Without question. Same. All right, there we go. Boom. Whew. All I'll right. I'm, on that one. I'm, I'm two, two for three here. Uh, <laughs> let's, go, let's go to another crowd pleaser here. Uh, I'm going to go with the Tudor Black Bay reference 7922R. That is the original Black Bay from pre-Basel 2012. It was released before the show. Um I mean, this is the watch. If, we, if we're talking about brands that had big decades, Tudor had a huge decade. They re-entered a number of key markets, including the US, the UK, and Japan, like three of the biggest watch markets in the world. Um, and this was the watch that, that really kicked all of this off. So we talked about it a little bit with Omega with this you know, vintage reissue and kind of vintage throwback trend. But while the Black Bay wasn't the first vintage throwback watch, I think it was the first one, as, as far as I can remember, it's the first one that made a real impact. There were other brands doing it. Um, you know, actually, Bell & Ross is a brand that did it pretty early on. 
but nothing caught on quite like the Black Bay did. Um, and this then became the foundation for Tudor's resurgence across the globe. Like Tudor today doesn't exist without the Black Bay in the same way. Um, you know, we've seen literally dozens of variants on the Black Bay, some with dyed bezels, some without, some in two-tones, some in, in steel. Um, you know, arguably the Black Bay was then the foundation for for the Pelagos uh, in, in certain ways. I mean, this, this watch, I have a hard time imagining sport watches over the last 10 years without, or I guess eight years, uh, without the Black Bay. I think you're right, Stevie. Occasionally, I get it. I'm not, I don't have a rebuttal. I don't have a rebuttal. Did I miss anything? Like, are there are there any other reasons why the Black Bay should be on this list? I, I like that we got back to Tudor being both its own thing while existing as the kind of like sibling to Rolex. Yeah. Because for an enthusiast, you, there is that weird gulf between the upper price point of like an entry level Seiko, let's call it six or seven hundred dollars. And then what you buy when you're ready next. And like Rolex is hard to buy, very hard to buy and 10 grand. Let's just call it 10 grand for fun. Maybe it's six, but it's probably like you probably want to sell, which is 8,800 or $9,100, whatever the new money is for 2020. And now you can get like, you know exactly what you're buying when you buy something from Tudor. It's going to be like perfect. It's going to work really well. Now they have a 39 millimeter version. Now they have a GMT. Uh, you know, there, there's a, the, that Black Bay line has spawned what, let's call it, I should have looked at our buyer's guide, but 12 iterations probably, plus a couple complications, all for class leading in terms of price, uh, which I think like, like for them is a remarkable thing to manage um, and, and take all of that and then add in what you mentioned about breaking back into new markets. That's the kind of thing that kills car brands. Just talk to Alfa Romeo. They tried it, it failed, they left, they tried it again. It's not going that well. It's just, it's not that easy to do. And let's not forget, they also have a very big brand as their quote unquote older sibling, Ferrari, Fiat. Like these are brands that should be able to weather and bring anything in. So that like, it, it's easy to say like they came back and they did well because they had good product, but it's genuinely not that easy. Yeah. You have to have people buy it and you have to make something that's both good and desirable. And sometimes those two things don't overlap. Totally. Yeah, I really, I remember feeling when that watch came out at the time that it was almost cooler to get that Black Bay than, than to get the sub. Yeah, no, there no, was, I, I think was, a lot of people felt that way. There was a real, um, oh, there was just such interest, you know? And um, maybe some of that had to do with the fact that it also kind of coincided with the rise of, um, you know, popular editorial about watches on the internet. Um and so, like, younger people were getting more into watches, and naturally they were gravitating toward that price segment. Yeah. Um, but um, the nah, price seg- a, that was a good choice. The price segment's a really interesting thing. I mean, James yeah. and, and John, you both brought it up. Like, Tudor created a new type of competition in that price segment, the sort of, like, what, what in the industry is called, like, the three to five, right? It's, like, 3000 to $5,000 watches. And it pre- it, it we get into... M- pre me being in the industry. So my, my sort of perspective is a little warped. Like I can only know what I know from talking to people. I wasn't around, but my sense is like in the, the early two thousands and even heading into the early teens, like that wasn't a price segment people were focused on. Like you were either buying a Seiko, uh, for a couple hundred bucks max, 
or you were buying a Rolex or higher, right? Like you were buying like a luxury, luxury watch, or you were buying a sort of like enthusiast entry level watch. I mean, I mean, it's it's a price point that previously we would have seen Omega operating fairly strongly at, but right yeah. at the top end of it with the right. Seamaster, right. and then below that Oris. But I think we'll get to Oris at some point in this chat. Oris hadn't gotten to the speed they're at now. No, they hadn't. That's they're a brand, very that, different brand that was operating at a much different pace Correct. than yeah. versus now, mm. and I would say with a much lower level of just general blanket desirability. They were making a great watch, but I didn't come into this 10, 12 years ago constantly talking about Oris. And now if you want to talk about this price point, it's that Seiko space, then you hit into like Oris and Doxa, and then you're into Tudor. And then you know, yeah. it, there's this nice kind of progression. Yeah. But I think the Black Bay kind of lit a fire under a lot of brands to compete in that space, right? Oh, like definitely. brands like Omega, brands like Tag Heuer, right? Who, who are now brands like Oris, who are kind of competing more now at the top of their, their price segment. Every, everybody now who operates anywhere near that price segment has to have a kick-ass sport watch that's between three and 4,000 bucks. That's like really just, high quality. Yeah. That's have, the thing is like exactly. Tudor hits this price point. That's, I won't say it's accessible, but it's a, you know, the two, three range, but it's, it's a five to $7,000 range quality in my opinion, if not higher. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and they've continued to evolve that quality too. Right. So I know this is, we're getting it slightly off topic, but it's, with the with the new in-house movements yeah. in, in the Black Bay, yeah, because this had an edit movement when it yes, launched. Yes, yeah. So I mean, just this is totally anecdotal. So take it uh, however you want to take it as a grain of salt or whatever. But I was recently, um, whenever I test drive a new watch or just have a chance to wear a new watch, I'll always set it to the second to the Hodinkee app, and just see how it performs over the for, over the course of like three or four days. And I recently did this with a Black Bay Fifty Eight, and it was like I'm being totally honest. It was within like a second or two variation over the course of uh, four or five days, which is crazy. You know, I mean, it's just like when you, and when you consider what a good value that watch is, it's like, how do they do it? Really? Yeah. All right. So I think I probably know the answer to this question, but Cara, the Black Bay on your list? Yes, it is. James? Yep. John? Definitely. Boom. There we go. Three for four. Um, Yes, I'm keeping score. Um, All right. Next up, we're going to go, we're going to jump ahead a couple years to 2017. And I'm going to go with the Bulgari Octofinissimo Automatic. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. We uh, we have one floating around the office somewhere, and everybody's been playing with it for the last two, three days. Um, so I think I, I think I know your answers to this already. But my reason for putting this watch on this list is with all the sort of like chatter and energy and excitement and money being put behind integrated steel bracelet sport watches... I don't know if I put those words in the right order or not, but like the APs, you know, Royal Oaks, the Nautilus is the world. Um, Bulgari created a watch that kind of fits in that category, but in a totally different way. Um, I, I really, I, I can think of only a handful of watches I can say this about, but like the Octofinissimo is a new design language. It has a new sort of architecture to the case. The way the bracelet fits on the wrist and fits in with the case is really interesting. Having such a thin, flat movement um, in a thin, flat, sort of like steep-sided case is really interesting. Like, I, I actually think the Octofinissimo is a is a new archetype of, of watch. Um, the first Octofinissimo was the Turbion, which came out in 2014. It was on a strap. Um, for me, this watch needs the bracelet to really, like, come into its own. And that was introduced with, with the Automatic in uh, 2017. 
which was titanium and also was pretty excessively priced. Like this watch was under $15,000, I believe, uh, on the bracelet, which when you look at what it's competing with is like somewhere between a third and half less. Um, so I, I think this is this is something that continues to grow. I think Bulgari is far from done uh, with this platform, but I think if we're looking at something that is like truly a brand new out of nowhere design uh, from the last 10 years, this this might take the cake for me. I want to disagree with you, but I don't. You want to disagree with me? Yeah. All right. You're allowed. <laughs> what do you think, John? Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. And I, I think it was like 20, 2010 or maybe 2011 when Bulgari took the Daniel Roth and Gerald Genta brands yeah. and folded them into their into the, the unified mark and everything from that point on was Bulgari. But they continued with watches that still felt very much like they came from the era of Daniel Roth uh, and, and others that came, uh, very much uh, seemed like they came from the era of Gerald Genta, right? Of that brand, not the person, but the brand. Um with with Octo specifically, I think when you see um, the Octo Finissimo come in, that's really Bulgari uh, putting their own stamp on it and saying that this is now our 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 brand, our design, and this is a Bulgari watch. This is not a, a Gerald Genta watch. Um, so that's just I mean that's just some kind of at this point maybe slightly obscure watch history, but it's uh, it's another reason why I think it's uh, a very important watch. Yeah. I mean, James, the the Bulgari in question that's been floating around the office is is in the office for a story you're working on. What are what are your thoughts on this watch? Yeah, but I, I don't really have anything to add to this conversation. I think that it definitely deserves um, a, a position, at least in the running for um, you know most important watch of the decade because it moved the you know I'll, I'll, I'm very much a huge sports fan. You guys know so. And football is a game of yardage. You got to move the chain, and <laughs> and of course. <laughs> Move the chain. Move the chain. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just expend everything I knew about football yeah. in one sentence. Score but, the points, win the game, James. Yeah, gotta you, kick the field goal. You know, uh, the best defense <laughs> is a strong offense, and what Balgrey's done here is is really just stepped up with something that other people weren't making. What are you even saying? Right yeah, now? I, none of that. <laughs> is, That's true, though. The did you just no, enter I get, a strong I get offense? It, but did you just enter defense, like a fugue state? Like oh, yeah. what, what that happened? Went, that sure. went right over my head. But if you're if you're saying. That this is pushing design forward. I'm saying I'm saying that, that you look at you look at Bulgari in the past. They would have been, I think, operating from more of a defensive position. Like, I don't necessarily want to point fingers, but look at the way that like LV runs their watches. Right. I think that's more reactive and defensive than it is necessarily being progressive and putting moving, yourself pushing yeah. pushing that's the fair. game further, showing like yeah, like every time that there is a chance to launch a new watch next to your peers, launching something thinner. Yeah. Better. More expensive, more intricate, yeah. more difficult to make, more desirable. Whatever it is, those those sorts of superlatives, I think, is what has made the last decade so huge for that brand. Yeah. It's also just so different from everything else. It's kind of like, sometimes you look at watches and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, it's a whole palette cleanser for sure. They're all like, they're all almost exactly the same. And then yeah. you look at Bulgari and you're like, oh, that's different. Yeah. And, and you're I, like, and that's interesting. Different and, like, and subtle at the same time, yeah. which is special. Because sometimes wearable. to be different, it has to be super bright or like huge or yeah. difficult to wear or problematic as a product. But they like nail all those things. And they make something that like you put on your wrist and you're like, this doesn't wear like any other watch in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of wears like a weird bracelet, like cuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like a cuff. Yeah. But it's yeah. so it's flat. Like and you pointed bracelet. this out. It's so flat and so thin that it can't move. Right. There's because there's so little there's the delta between the width of the lugs and most of the bracelet is very narrow. So there, there's just not any wobble right ability. And because of course it sits 
on its lugs, not on the case back because it's so thin. They just don't, they don't go anywhere on your wrist. You forget yeah. they're there. And, uh, I, I think they've, what they've done is they've made a, uh, like a very desirable luxury product that isn't like all of their competitors products. Agreed. So totally agree. Moving the chain. Moving the, moving chain. the chain. Off Bulgari. defense to offense. Bulgari, offense, defense, moving the chain. 2020. Um, all right. So, John, this going on your list? Oh, 100%. James? Yep. Kara? Yes. Man, I'm loving this. This week's episode is presented by Leica Camera and the brand new M10 Monochrome. Leica shocked the photography world when they released the original Leica Monochrome in 2015. A digital camera that shot exclusively in black and white certainly got people talking. Since then, the Monochrome has set a new benchmark for what digital black and white photography can be, creating a dedicated community of enthusiasts along the way. But now, Leica's taking this concept to a whole new level with the release of the M10 Monochrome. Based on the M10P, the M10 Monochrome is slimmer, quieter, and features tons of additional features, including Wi-Fi for sharing images directly from the camera to your mobile device of choice. The analog ISO dial has settings from 160 to 12,500, though you can crank it all the way up to ISO 100,000 for shooting in any conditions. This is a completely up-to-date take on the Monochrome from top to bottom. Importantly, this includes a totally new 40 megapixel black and white sensor that can achieve unparalleled resolution, contrast, and dynamic range. You get a fine-grained rendition of your subjects, giving the results a more analog feel. Trust me, the images you get out of this camera look nothing like those you'd get from a typical camera set to a black and white mode. When it comes to the body of the camera, Leica wanted the monochrome vibe to carry all the way through. The usual red highlights on the knobs and dials have been desaturated to a cool gray tone, and the Leica red dot has been removed from the front altogether in the style of the MP cameras. The Leica M10 monochrome branding on the top plate is engraved and filled with black paint for that black-on-black look. To call this camera sleek would be an understatement. For more on the new M10 monochrome and Leica's other cameras and lenses, visit us.leicacamera.com. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, uh, I'm going to shake shit up here. Uh, this is where people start to get mad at me. Uh, please at me in the comments on the site about this one, because I know you're going to. 2017, same year as the Bulgari, the Apple Watch Series 3. It's the first Apple Watch with cellular. Uh, I really struggled with which Apple Watch to pick here, but that to me is game changer like that to me is when it becomes a real viable option um i've been covering the apple watch going back to 2014 september 2014 when they announced it in uh, in cupertino uh ben was there um we had many many long conversations about this thing and like what it meant for watches and i think now in hindsight you know guess what like five and a half years later after that um i think it's pretty hard to deny this this changed the game i mean more I struggle to think of, in fact, I don't even struggle to think of, I am pretty willing to say as a fact that there is no watch that has been talked about more over the last five and change years than the Apple Watch. Um, as far as like mainstream press and mainstream interest goes, there's nothing like this. Um, it has gotten more people thinking about and talking about watches and what they can and should be than anything to come out of the traditional watch industry. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good thing. I think it's an interesting thing. Um, and I think, again, having reviewed basically every generation of this watch, um, once the Series 3 came out and then continuing up to now, 
this feels like a mature product. This feels like Apple knows what they're doing. It feels like they have goals. It feels like they have a target somewhere down the road that they're aiming at. And uh, I don't see this going away any anytime soon. I agree. For me, the game changer with the Apple Watch, though, is the light up screen staying lit on Series 5, staying lit up the whole okay. time. Then so you're felt, picking Series then it, 5. Because it felt like a real watch then. Next. <laughs> I mean, speaking as someone who uh, hugely admire admires Apple for what they do uh, with, I would say, like the vast majority of their products, I've never really been able to get into an Apple Watch. So I can, although I've tried to wear them, it's never been something that's stuck for me. Um, so I can say just kind of as someone who doesn't have a ton of experience with the product, um, I, th- I, I would say probably the first one, right? Because that's, mm. that is like, it's the original Apple Watch. It's Apple entering um, the category and really shaking things up and making their presence felt. And for that reason, I would say it's the most significant Apple Watch and definitely, and there's for sure an Apple Watch deserves to be on this list. I would say probably just the first one though. James, where are you at? Yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't even use an iPhone if they want to adopt a normal charging cable, we can, we can have that discussion down the road. <laughs> USB-C would be Droid. lovely uh, <laughs> if, if we're looking for something really out of left field. Uh, but I don't even use an iPhone, and I would say that this is likely the watch of the decade. Apple yeah. Watch. I, I don't really care what series. Like, if the, if Series 3 was the one where it became more of a, its own product rather than a screen mirroring another product, then super. If it's 5 when it becomes um, a product with its own screen like a watch, uh, then super. Um, but I think, like, if, if we're just talking about, like, if it's not about watches I like or my sense of taste or any of that stuff, then just watches that, like, did something this decade, that's the something. It was smart watches. It brought a lot of other people into the fold. I mean, you guys remember when that watch, the original one launched and there was these endless kind of six, eight months parade of articles about how this was the next quartz crisis and it yeah. was gonna really eat, uh, drink the 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 Swiss watch, uh, Swiss watch industry's milkshake. And, and, and obviously that didn't happen. In many ways, I think that what it did was, you know, reheated some of the coals. And, and brought a lot of people back to the table about what was possible at the sub thousand dollar price point. And unless you're fossil, and then it dumped your milkshake on the sidewalk. Yeah, but they're okay. I mean, fossils—they're like buying people. Fossils yeah. a pretty big thing. I mean, I would say like it—it's—it's it's a harder game if you're Google with Wear OS. It's a harder yeah. game if you're Sunto, who just launched their smartwatch like weeks ago. Yeah, you might be a little late to that game. Garmin's really cleaning up, but you know it's a, a vastly different product, right? And then every brand kind of has their own perspective on what a smartwatch should be. It's really clear that Apple's been the most successful with what it is, which yeah. they've nailed a price point that other brands have been scared of. Um, you know, a price point that Seiko or Citizen otherwise would have been the go-to, and and you know even G-Shock Casio's been super slow to start adding in quote-unquote smartwatch functionality, and they even. Some of it's really half baked, or not even half baked, but like half measure. In that, it's you can use Bluetooth to change the time zone on the watch. Yeah, so it's it's not actual connectivity. It's not it's not these things that people would be looking for. And and I think if you you now look back and say like, oh, so they came to the market with like a pretty developed concept of what they wanted to make. And and sure, maybe it took a few years to get to ones with their own data or or ones with their own you know, screen that stays on all the time. But I think that they started with a fairly they were most of the way there. Yeah. All right. Kara, is that on your list? Yes. James? Sure. John? <laughs> yeah. I'd All say right. So. There we go. Uh, we'll go the total opposite direction for this. Uh, I struggled with which watch to pick to represent this idea. So 
I want all of your opinions on on what watch you think represents this idea. The watch I picked was the MBNF Legacy Machine One from 2011. It's a high end, independent, time only watch. Um, this one happens to have two time zones, but it's not like we're not talking chronographs. We're not talking calendar watches here. This this is a high end watch uh, from an independent brand that has a sort of bent toward traditional watchmaking. I think MBNF brings something new to the table too, but for them, this was a real turn toward toward being inspired by old school, like 19th century watchmaking. Um, and that's something that that I've noticed as a real force kind of uh, emerging over the last couple of years. And going back, I think, to, to around 2011 is the rise of the independence and specifically the rise of independence making these sort of like simple but really exceptional watches, you know, whether that's Recep Recepi and Eda Crivia making the Chronomet Contemporaine, whether it's somebody like Roman Gautier making the Logical One, whether it's what Grubel Forzi is doing, like... Gronfelds. Yeah, Gronfelds, yeah. I mean, it's it's really... There's all these people, Kari, who, who are making really high-end timepieces that are, like, deceptively complex, and they're doing it by taking these old handcrafts and these old school ways of thinking about watchmaking and making them relevant again. Um, and I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming decade, but I think really the kind of foundation was laid last decade. So I picked LM1. Um, I have a soft spot for that watch. Um, it kind of predates my being in the watch industry, quote unquote, uh, but I was aware of it at the time and aware of MBNF. And, and I remember seeing it and just kind of, it blew my mind. Um, what, what do you guys think about that? What, what do you think about this category? And what do you think about picking a watch to represent this category? I would agree with your choice. I think in watches, it's easy to kind of say, oh, we made the most complicated watch, therefore we are the best. And so kind of going back to brass tacks and making an incredibly high-end, expensive, unusual time only watch was kind of turning things on their head and i think the mb the you know the lm1 is really significant of that i mean it's a weird thing it's not normal it and is like a very weird but it's thing. beautiful and it's interesting and you know he max came from harry winston and he was making all those crazy watches that they had opus, opus and, uh, and then like and and then he kind of started from ground one on his, on his own and made this really beautiful time only thing so. yeah yeah I, I i would tend to agree as well i think max as cara said came from uh, harry winston where he kind of invented uh make you know the platform for the independent watchmaker to give them a to put them on a on a on a higher stage um and then he took that concept and really evolved it in the decade that ended up being, as Stephen said, the decade of the uh, of the independent watch. So for those reasons, I would agree. One thing I would add, though, is that when I talk to friends who are like not into watches at all, like repeatedly, the independent brand that they know is Resonance for whatever really? reason. Huh. Yeah, that's the one that I've... That's I mean, super interesting. It's that's happened interesting. like a few times. So people who I would not expect to know any independent watch brands, that's the name that I've heard. And so, again, this is just like, John anecdotal thing. I would I would say maybe we could consider uh, an early example from Resonance. I don't know exactly like a, which like one. Like a type one or a type three? Yeah, something like that. All yeah. right, I'll, I'll take that. James, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. It's one of those things where I guess if this was 2011 for Legacy Machine 1, yeah. then Opus predated all of that. So that's, mm-hmm. that's out sure. of this decade. Because I would say that's really like that was the, the boiling point for a lot of this. And obviously Max moved on. So I, I think that... 
we definitely need a, a I think we definitely need a, a great independent watch on here. Whether I would lean more towards this, which is of course being a legacy machine, it's, it's about looking back, applying the MBNF formula, but looking back at at watchmaking versus the horological machines, which are more forward looking and more avant garde. I'm of two minds. Where like, I want one that is one of Max's creations. I, I definitely because I think that's that's about right. Um, or or something like a Group of Four Z Sig One. Um, or, or the Crivia, certainly. It, it, yeah, there's so much here to unpack. I, I think that independents deserve a watch yeah. for this list. What yeah. watch it is is kind of tough because, uh, I mean, there's some horological machines that I think definitely make a, make a place. The Thunderbolt, uh, I, th- I thought was an, a pretty wild thing to see in person, to experience in person. But I suppose maybe in terms of general impact, yeah, legacy machines as good a choice as any. Sweet. All right, so for your lists, Kara, I'm I'm sticking with that one. James, you going with an HM or an LM? I, I think I'd, I'd stick with the with the LM one. If it was 2011, I think it set a pace. All right, and John? Yeah, I would I would agree. I think just because of the timing with the with the LM, I would say I would right. go with the LM. But Sweet. I think in terms of you know the the, the foundation of MBNF as a brand, probably probably HM. Nice. Sweet. All right, we got three more. We got three. We're in the home stretch here. I'm going to go to 2014 now, and I'm going with the Swatch System 51. Um, I remember when this watch came out, it was a very weird situation. Uh, it was at Baselworld, and so the main the main hall of Baselworld is actually around this sort of circular courtyard, and so there's Hall 1, which is where all the big brands used to, I guess, exhibit. Now, still all the big brands that are at Baselworld, but at that point, it was everybody. And then across from that was another hall that didn't really have anything in it. Like there wasn't, um, there weren't brands exhibiting, but Swatch used it as kind of this like weird, like museum art installation space. And it was kind of a, like a, oh, if you have time to kill, like go over to the Swatch exhibit. Like they have all these crazy old swatches and like a bunch of big art pieces and sculptures and whatever. So like between appointments, people would go over and then you start to hear murmurs through Baselworld 2014 of people being like, did you guys see the new Swatch? Did you see the mechanical Swatch? Swatch did something mechanical and everybody was freaking out about it. And, uh, but it was like, it was, people were freaking out about it, but also like nobody knew quite what it was. Like everybody was kind of murmuring about it because they just had it in a vitrine in the middle of this giant room that had all kinds of like wild, crazy, multicolored shit going on everywhere. They just had this watch in a vitrine with like a tiny plaque next to it, explaining very briefly in English what it was. Um, and so I went over there and I was able to get in touch with, with, this woman who ran PR for the whole Swatch Group US at the time. Um, and I was like, can can I meet you over there? And can you like explain this thing to me? Like, I have no, no idea. I just like went like dumb reporter hat on and just was like, tell me about this thing I don't know anything about. Uh, and it turned out it was the System 51. Um, and we were able to, they weren't able to pull one out of the vitrine, but we were able to get one off of Mr. Hayek's wrist, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, and at the time we had the only hands-on photos of this watch for like a long time. Um, it was a pretty cool thing to be able to be there at this moment for something that has gone on not only to matter in the, the broader watch culture, but be a kind of big part of Hodinkee's story now since since we've been doing these collaborations with Swatch. Um, but the reason, all that aside, personal anecdotes, blah, 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 m- mattering to Hodinkee, all of that, set it aside. Uh, to me, the reason this watch belongs on the list is it signifies Swatch's belief in mechanical watches and the future of mechanical watches. 
this is for a lot of people it's it's a gateway it's a way into loving mechanical watches it's you know affordably priced like actually affordably priced not a couple thousand dollars it's 150 bucks uh you can get them in basically every major city across the globe you can get them in airports uh they're fun they're colorful i know a ton of people who wear them i give them to people as gifts pretty frequently um and to me, this is this is a statement. I mean, this was a probably tens of millions of dollars investment from Swatch to develop this and tool up for it. And they have a whole factory that does nothing but make these these watches by robot, essentially. Um, and I think that's a pretty serious kind of like shot across the bow from them saying like, we believe in the future of mechanical watchmaking. And we think that there is there is value in an inexpensive, fun mechanical watch uh, to help people get into this hobby. So what do you, I, I don't know, what, what do you guys think after I've rambled for the last couple of minutes? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with basically everything that Steven said. Um, I can't disagree with anything. I would just add my own anecdote that I remember. Um, I think it was like uh, right after SIHH. I've never been so excited after in SIHH as uh, SIHH 2015 when I went to the Geneva airport and was able to get a red one. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I like took it out of the box, wound it up, and wore it on the flight home. It was awesome. Yeah, because that was the other thing when it first came out. They didn't release them everywhere at once because they couldn't make enough of them. Yeah, they were they still had, like I think, they had an issue, I think they had an issue with that factory actually. Yeah, they did. I think there was like a fire or something, and so production was a little slow. Yeah, and it I was think, a thing yeah. for a little while. Like when you would go to Geneva, you'd buy like a couple of them in the airport and bring them back for people. Like I have a black one that uh, fr- friend of Hodinky, Greg Brown. Shout out to Greg Brown. Uh, who used to work in the same office as us. Uh, Greg brought them back for Ben, Will, and me uh, in like late 2014, I think. Uh, and it was it was so exciting to have one because you couldn't get them except in Geneva. Any other any other System 51 thoughts here? No, it gets my vote. Get your vote? Get your vote? Definitely, yeah. Oh, man. I'm loving this. So far, Omega's my only miss here. Um, all right, so the two brands that are up last are two. You're probably wondering where they are. The first one will go with AP. Um, AP had a big decade to say the least. They had a big decade the decade before, but I would argue this decade was even bigger. Um, I'm going to go with the Royal Oak 15202, which is the modern jumbo. It's the steel jumbo. Uh, It's essentially the modern version of the original Royal Oak. Uh, It was released in 2012 for the 40th anniversary of the Royal Oak. it's one of those watches that like it feels like it's been around forever like i can't really imagine a time where ap wasn't making a version of this watch but they weren't for quite a while um and it's still a watch that is like it's on that list of like steel watches that are impossible to get it's years long wait lists they don't make relatively speaking they don't make that many of them especially compared to the volumes they do for some of the other royal oak models um and you know it's not the most popular royal oak it's not the one they sell the most of. It's not the one most people ask for, but it is the enthusiast's choice. And it represents kind of a turn back to a, a maybe slightly more conservative style for AP. Um, you know, in the in the aughts, those were the years of it was offshore everything. I mean, every watch heading up to, you know, 2012 when this was released, you know, AP was releasing crazy colors, crazy metal combinations, gem set, whatever. It was like every week there was some sort of like limited edition Miami Beach, whatever, limited edition such and such basketball player or whatever. It was like some athlete, some place, some boutique, some cultural event, whatever, had its limited edition offshore. There were so many of them and 
they were often so brash and kind of over the top. This to me is when AP like changed tack. Um, and it's important to note that this was the same year that Francois, who is the current CEO of AP, uh, Francois Benamias, um, this was the year he was named, it was something like managing director. It wasn't CEO yet or like interim director of something. Um, but he was basically brought back from the U.S. office to the HQ in Switzerland. And then um, like 18 months later was was renamed CEO or 12 months later was, was named CEO. Um, so this to me, this watch, as much as anything else, represents AP changing tack for the decade ahead. I'm sure I missed something. Somebody's, somebody's got to have something I missed here. I think it might be the RD2 for me. Interesting. Because Interesting. the Royal Oak... It's kind of like one of the watches of the century, so it's hard to say that it's one of the watches of the decade because it's still an old design, whereas the RD2 is the same, but just pushing things forward a little bit. Moving the chain. Moving those chains. Scoring those points. Moving the chain. That's my two cents. That's my hot take. I think RD2 as well. Yeah? Uh, Or ceramic. Yeah, the ceramic. Um, Ooh, ceramic. You know, I I think that... Making the 15202 again or making the 15202 is making a watch that we already came down on Omega as not being necessarily making a watch of the decade if it was a watch that already existed previous to this decade. And I think that, uh, you know, taking the Royal Oak back, kind of cleaning up the concepts behind it and then producing some really interesting higher end expressions of a watch that you can't buy at its base is a very this decade or that decade thing to do. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so something like the RD2 or the um, the double balance A or uh, or the the ceramic, I think, would be more more in line with my uh, where I would I would go for uh, for AP's watch of the decade. Also, it's hard to reinvent a classic over and over and over again and make it's it true. interesting. It's true. And now I'm done. Sorry, John. Uh, no, 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 no problem. Uh, I would I'm, I'm going to agree with Kara and with James and say the RD2. And I think I actually maybe paraphrasing something that Stephen said originally which is that this is a watch that combines kind of the uh, the history and the kind of the conservative nature of the Royal Oak with all of the crazy complication stuff that AP uh, does. So it kind of it seamlessly, I would say, uh, melds those two things. And for that reason, it's, I think, uh, the uh, AP of the decade. All right, you know what I'm going to do here? I'm changing my answer. What? I'm going to go with all of you guys. I'm wrong here. That's the RD2 the is game. the right choice. I had a note about the RD2. Touchdown. Option. What? Touchdown. Touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is an oop-de-oop. That's what yeah, this is. It's an oop-de-oop. This That's is an true. actual oop-de-oop. We're uh, witnessing history right now. Yeah, you guys are right. You guys are right. I had a note about the RD2 as, as a watch that like I didn't sure think you quite did. fit in. And I wasn't sure where to <laughs> where to put it here. But you guys you guys won. Sorry. <laughs> I'm all, it's not I'll about it. winning, Stevie. Everything's about winning, Cara. Sorry. Uh, Says a lot about you, Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we are. Home, home stretch, guys. Cut Last one. <laughs> We're here. Who haven't we talked about yet? Let's see who's, who's keeping track. I know. Who haven't we talked about? Paddock. 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 Or, excuse me. Patek. John, now you got to say Paddock. Patek. 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 Oh, all right. Paddock. John over here with his Patek. All right. I'm going to pick a weird one. I'm going Grandmaster Chime. Uh, <laughs> Car Car just laughs at me. I say Grandmaster. No, because every time I hear that name, I think Grandmaster Flash, and I can't. <laughs> yeah, me too. I can't. Yeah. It's I only call that watch the Grandmaster Flash Perfect. because it just is great. I'm in. If Paddock makes a watch called the Grandmaster Flash, 
we should go in on it. We should buy one. We should all quit if they do because it, it, it will be the end Sepp of time. <laughs> shut, shut it down. Yeah. It will be the end that's, of time. That's it. We're done. Uh, thank you for listening and watching and reading Hodinky. <laughs> we are done. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going going uh, GMC here. Um, the original one came out in 2013. It was for Paddock's 175th anniversary. Most complicated wristwatch they'd ever made. Honestly, my two cents, the original one, which they made six of, um, hideous. Like with the engraved <laughs> case, dial was super over the top. It was just awful. Uh, in, in, it was in a my, more is more situation. Yeah. In my not so humble opinion, that watch was a case of like, it doesn't matter how much time and intelligence and engineering and like all this amazing stuff you put into a product. Like ultimately, it still has to look nice and it still has to like be a thing you want to put on your wrist or like all the other stuff is for naught. But... Since then, uh, Patek's released a sort of like aesthetically pared down version, cases in white metals, not engraved. It's like a little more palatable. Uh, and the reason this gets my vote for, for Patek's watch of the decade is, is for two reasons. One is to me, it's kind of Patek drawing a line in the sand, right? Like what everybody wants Patek to do right now is to make more Nautilus. Like that's what everybody wants. Everybody just wants to go out and buy 5711s and they want to go buy Aquanauts and they want maybe do stuff like the, what is it, the 5940, like complicated Nautilus, fine, whatever. That's what they want. And as Terry Stern told Joe uh, in a story that was published last year, like that's not what they're going to do. They have no interest in doing that. He's, he's kind of playing long game here. And to me, the Grandmaster Chime is, is the perfect example of that is, you know, Ben has said many times that once you get above a certain complication level, there's really nobody making anything at any sort of scale uh, who does it better than Patek. And I think this is is a watch that exemplifies that. Like, this is a major giant brand, and they invested a ton of money in making this totally over-the-top, obscenely complex watch um, in the face of the fact that everybody wants them to make, like, $28,000 steel time and date sport watches. And I think the message that sends about where Patek Philippe is going and where their internal priorities are versus what the market wants them to do is is strong. The second reason, which I don't think we can ignore, is the fact that a Grandmaster Chime is now the most expensive watch in the world. Uh, the unique steel piece with the salmon dial sold at only watch for $31 million. Um, it's the first time at least in in recent memory, at least in a generation or two, uh, that a quote-unquote modern or contemporary watch has been the most expensive watch in the world. Um, and I think that's that's something you can't ignore here. Like, Patek kind of, like, broke the market with this watch in a certain way. All right, I'm going to open it up. What do you guys think? Hot takes. Yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to, like, breaking this into two categories. It's, like, the cult following or technologically pushing moving the chain that's the theme of the episode this one moves the chain for sure and like it's cool to see brands doing something as complicated as that and this is something that panic has been doing for over 100 is it 175 years 175 years there you go and like the henry graves like this is basically the wristwatch version of the henry graves and the caliber 29 yep 89 caliber 89 it's the 89 yeah caliber 89 guys i'm tired that's all right it's all good (laughs) james what do you think is it a watch though? <laughs> it's a clock. It's a clock. It's a wrist clock. It's, it's a, a wrist clock. Yeah. Like it's a. What's I'm his with name? you. I'm with you on this. I, I don't. I, I don't see this as. I don't see this as a product. I see this as a as a, a museum piece, as a, a thing for five crazy collectors. I think it's a. 
it's a, an engineering exercise. It's a, it's a way for them to say like, just in case you forget, while well, you are buying Nautiluses, we're also the best. And that's for, why I think it's important though. for that. I think it's great. I, I, I have a lot of trouble even conceptualizing it as a watch. Okay. Um, so what do you put on here instead for Patek? the 5270G? I think was okay. huge white dial, black onyx markers like that one for me, like that's, that's Patek in a non Nautilus world. But you also have to remember like 2011's 5164, which is one of my favorite watches in the whole world. Yep. I think it's a watch that, that changed people's thinking about what the Nautilus is and how it relates to the Aquanaut. And I think it remains at least anecdotally, I've been told by people who know more about this than I do, one of the most desirable watches in the entire world, regardless of the metal it's made out of. It's absolutely a very cool watch. It's a, it's a watch that I love. And for me, it would definitely be the, uh, the fifth. It, it, this is where I'm going to lean in a little bit more on a bias. Yeah, go for it. Um, because I, no matter how much money I could possibly amass, I would never buy a Grandmaster Chime. Like it, it's, there's no desirability for me there. I like that it exists, I guess. Very fair. Um, I wouldn't want or aspire to own one or to be the curator of a collection that had one, because at that point you're not like, a, you don't own a watch, you own a piece of some brand's history. Yeah. And that's a lot, I think. Um, yeah. And it doesn't sound like fun to own that watch. <laughs> totally fair. Um, I think it's an immensely impressive thing. But I would like, it feels like something I'd rather see in a museum. I don't want the Mona Lisa in my house either. Yeah. Uh, but I think something like a 5164A would, or are, a 5164 is, is, if we're talking Patek doing something in a decade that was largely defined by the Nautilus and the desirability therein, I think that growing and shaping and, and rethinking the way that insiders reflected on the uh aquanaut is uh, crucial i think that's fair i can't argue with any of that john yeah. what do you think no i can't argue with any of that uh either um however i would just say that you know the most expensive watch ever to sell was made that you know was made like last year or whenever yeah, yeah. so it's within the decade and uh it's hard to say that if a brand made the most expensive wristwatch uh that that wouldn't be like kind of like their iconic watch for a decade you know? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I, I leaned on it, but I hear what James is saying and I'm kind of of two minds about this. I mean, you know, a, a watch that relates to the, to the Grandmaster Chime is, you know, and again, this one literally is not a wristwatch, is uh, Vacheron did the 57260, which is the most complicated watch ever made. Um, it's a giant, like, couple million dollar pocket watch. It weighs like a couple pounds. It's a total brick. I've held it. It's absurd. Um, it's also incredible. And it's like the fact that somebody is doing that level of watchmaking is extremely impressive to me and definitely worth worth some um, worth some applause. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's it's it's a tough thing. For me, it's a bit like, like what you're talking. I always, everything for me relates back to cars in some way. This is suddenly like... <clears throat> Well, the most expensive car is a Formula One car, probably, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And I don't want one of those. Like, under the right circumstances and the right kind of white glove scenario, I'm sure it'd be really fun to try and drive one. But like, if I picked up this Grandmaster Tram, I wouldn't want to press any of the buttons for fear that some tiny piece <laughs> of metal on the inside would bend or snap, or the date wheel would move halfway because I did something wrong and its mechanical perfection was negated 
by my 34 years of general malfeasance. <laughs> and that, that like, there's a concern level there. And, like, I see something like a, like a 51 or a Daytona. Like, these are products. These are BMW 3 Series. These are, yeah. you know, th- things that people buy and enjoy and you can have as, as something that's not so precious that yeah. it, 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 that starts to outweigh it as a, as a product. All right. I hear that. Let's, uh, let's take our vote. And then I got one more question for you guys before I let you all go. Uh, John, Grandmaster Chime, yay or nay? Uh, yay. Like a reluctant yay. All right. <laughs> a reluctant yay. Perfect. That's my favorite kind of vote. James? Noy. Was it, when did the 5711 come out? Before, uh, I think before this. Before the decade. I believe before this. Okay, then yay. All right. I'm going to give a yay, but also with a, a like nod. a sad yay. Yeah, with a nod, a, a, a thoughtful yay. A yay, but thinking about what James said deeply and open to having my mind changed. Uh, all right, last question. We got our 10 watches. I'm going to run down the 10 watches real quick. We got a Rolex Daytona, the 1165-00LN, uh, which is the ceramic bezel Daytona. I've got the Omega Trilogy set. I've got the Richard Mille RM2701 Turbion Raphael Nadal. I've got the original Tudor Black Bay, the reference uh, 7922R. The Bulgari Octofinissimo Automatic. The Apple Watch Series 3. The MBNF Legacy Machine 1. The Swatch System 51. The AP Royal Oak uh, 15202. And the Patek Philippe Grandmaster Chime. Who won the decade? Which watch brand? We don't have to say a particular watch. But which watch brand won the decade? Rolex. Mm. Especially if you if you if you consider Tudor part of Rolex. Oh, interesting. I mean, then, then there's there's simply too much happening there between the meteoric rise, the continued rise of all vintage Rolex in terms of just value and desirability, the explosion of the Daytona, the modernization of the Daytona, the amazing GMT, the steady advance of all of their other models. Uh, and the fact that you can't buy any of them <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and then take all of that and also an amazing decade for Tudor, one that could rival Rolex's success, but they are in many ways, they operate as a, a pair. Uh, they, they're certainly considered as such by the enthusiast community uh, to have a, a fairly strong relationship and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think if, if you're, if that's where we're going, it's hard to say that anyone else ha- brought that big a bat to the fight, but I would consider it was an an immense decade for Grand Seiko. So if we just to stick with Tudor Tudor and Rolex for a minute, would anybody here disagree? If we consider Tudor and Rolex one company, would anybody disagree that they won the decade? I would say this. I would say they won the decade, but I think for for them, I think Bulgari actually had a bigger decade relative to their size and relative to their starting point as a watchmaker in in the year twenty eleven. So you think the needle was moved more for Bulgari in the I would last? Say, 10 I would years? say so. Yeah. 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 Okay. And if we consider Tudor and Rolex separately, James, do you think there's someone else who outshines them big picture if you don't have them together? No, if they're not together, I would give it to Tudor. Okay. Um, especially because we're talking about things that happened in this decade. So it's at a certain point, you don't want to only talk about the Paul Newman Daytonas and what they're worth now. Uh, the only other consideration is if we are willing to consider groups, I don't think anyone beat the Indies. I think independents had an insane year of proving the fact that they can operate at any level mm. at multiple price points at time only at exceeding complication. Uh, they can work together. They yes. can, 
I, I, th I think like for me, this decade was about what came out of that world. We knew what Rolex was going to do because they've been doing it for so many decades. Like steel sport watches, they're really good at it. And eventually they might let you down every now and then. And it might make you wake, wait for another Basel world, but they'll get there on their time. Uh, but I think the Indies for me is what blew it out of the water. Like the MBNFs, the uh, Kari's, the, the, uh, all of it. Yeah. Fantastic point. I mean, David I think, Toon. yeah, this decade was the decade of like the palace in Basel, right? When it became a for real me, destination, sure. yeah. Yeah. CB, what did it for you? I think something to piggyback on the independence having such a big decade, I think social media and the way that things were covered really changed the game for people, for independence. And I think that that's, that's why point, they yeah. had... It wasn't before, maybe just just that they were doing anything different than they had previously, but they, they had this magnification yeah, structure. They finally had fair. a voice and they finally had people talking about them, which I think was really significant for the industry as a whole. Um, I still think it's Rolex. I still have yet to see a brand besides maybe Paddock create such a demand for such a simple, well-made product. It just, you know, I know that they had a big, they had a big decade before that, but like, I'm sorry, like a wait list for a Daytona and a no date yeah, sub. Like, I agree. You just like, it's just bizarre. And like it, that's, and it's all anyone talks about. And that's why I think they had the biggest decade. And that's, yeah. I guess it's only the last half of this decade was what you're going to, were you going to say that? And so I think that that maybe skews my view a little bit. Also, I'm like obsessed with Rolex, no secret there. Um, but I really do think it's like, it's a big deal. Yeah. In I mean, the watch I've, industry. I said for a long time, like the thing that blows me away about Rolex is like Rolex makes a product that is totally unnecessary. Like you do not need, I mean, we've said this a million times, like you do not need a wristwatch in the 2000 teens or in 2020, right? So Rolex makes a totally unnecessary luxury product. They make a million plus units by most people's estimations. Rolex will not confirm that. Uh, they make a million plus units a year and there's a wait list for something that no one needs and that maintains the most unbelievable brand equity and sort of like, space in the popular imagination that you can you can conceive of and it's crazy it's it isn't it crazy. isn't it isn't it isn't because like we also don't need coca-cola that's another one of like the biggest brands in the world like we would be better off in that case we'd be better off it didn't exist we don't need the <laughs> Fair, we don't yeah, yeah. what's what's the biggest baseball team yankees okay we don't need the yankees yes we do Okay, well, that's fine. But, but, like, we don't need... We don't need, no, we don't. We don't need baseball. Come at me. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of this is never about what we yeah, need. Like, yeah, I, I don't true. I don't know if there's... A, like, there's... There's the, the Rolex of every space. We don't need Rolls-Royce at all, right? Right. It's awesome that they exist and they had a good year, right? Or a good decade. Um, totally. But you, you, in theory, like, most people, like, need a car. Or sure. most people, like, need to eat or drink, right? Like, you need, you need these things Water, in some yeah. form. If you don't need the same... <laughs> right. But you don't need the same... You don't need a particular brand or a particular product, but you need something in that category. Watches are, like, purely there for enjoyment at this point. Like, there are so many timekeeping devices around us all the time that, like, a watch is... It's not like you need a watch and you just don't need a Rolex. You, you don't need a watch. And the fact that Rolex has managed to make not just their own watches, but, like, the idea of watches so appealing um i think is a pretty pretty amazing thing um last question we're not going to do any like real deep dive here i just want just want a brand name from you who do you think has set themselves up to be the winner of this next decade when we do this in 10 years and we're doing this in 10 years by the way i'm finding all of you i'll go first i'm gonna go with omega i think uh 
I yeah, think I would I'm, agree with that. Yeah? I would agree with that. Omega. James, where are you at? pretty bullish on brands like Oris. I think, again, Omega would be an incredible choice. Like that brand has so many avenues, so many moves available to them. I, I, th- I think like we might we might be looking back at at a, another very incredible decade for Rolex and for Patek and I for can't, Apple. Can't argue with that. John, where are you at? Ooh, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think probably Apple. Um, I think the, the, the future is probably uh, mostly theirs. Um, but in terms of like, you know, makers of traditional mechanical watches, maybe Grand Seiko. I feel like it was really the second uh, half or maybe even the last quarter of this decade that was huge for them, and I would I would expect that success to continue. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree on that point as well. Nice. Well, thanks, everybody, for doing this. This was fun, and uh, I'm glad you guys convinced me I was wrong on a couple points. And, uh, yeah, let us know if you're listening to this. Hit up the site and let us know down in the comments what you agree with, what you don't agree with. Um, maybe we'll incorporate some of those answers into a future episode. And uh, yeah. Okay, bye. Thank, uh, can I just say thanks uh, to Stephen and Gray for putting this episode together? It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Good idea. Anytime. Anytime, my guy. Awesome. Thanks, dudes. This week's episode was recorded at Hodinki HQ in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.